Hey, Justin, will you? Never mind, Christy's getting. I was going to see you grab that door. Thank you. Um, all right, so the rest of us remaining in here, um, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, 31 to 37. If you don't have a Bible, you could find that printed in your, um, in your bulletin. I have a friend who is a dad, and um, when all of his kids were, were teenagers, he asked them this question. He said, what's difficult about living with me as your dad? Uh, which is a really, uh, dads, maybe you need to ask your kids that. I, I don't know that I have the courage to ask them yet. It's a humble question. It's a loving question. But it takes a lot of courage to ask your kids that. And I honestly want them to answer, what's difficult about me being your dad? And, you know, and he, as he was telling me about this, he said he wasn't quite sure what they were going to say. You know, maybe, maybe they would talk about his work schedule, how much dad was at work, or how maybe sometimes he lost his temper, his issues with anger, or maybe sometimes how he used his free time um, he didn't know what they would say. And, and he said um, their response was, it was the same for all three kids. And they said, um, they said this. They said, here's what's hard about it, about having you as our dad. He said, they said, when you say you're going to do something with us and you don't do it. Of all that could be said, um, it was simply that he sometimes would make commitments to his kids and not follow through on those commitments. He, he wouldn't keep his word sometimes. And that was the hardest thing that those kids experienced. And as he was telling me this, I instantly felt guilty about my own kids and, and how often they've asked, Dad, can we go outside and play? And I'll say, yes, we can go outside and play. Just give me like 10 minutes to like talk to Mom for a minute and, and do these few things. Or, Dad, can we go play, do something in my room? Yes, 10 minutes, I'll be up there. Let me just do this thing. Dad, we sit and watch this with me. Will you read this? Yeah, yeah, just give me a couple minutes. And I'll say, yes, I'll commit to doing it. But then I don't follow through. I don't keep my word to them. Um, we experience this in all kinds of, of everyday ways, people not keeping their word. Maybe it's in interactions with children, maybe it's in an interaction with a roommate or with a coworker. someone saying they're going to do something at work, they don't do it, or vice versa. And we see this in bigger ways sometimes too, where, where like a political figure um, promises to do something during a campaign speech, right? And then they get elected into office and it never happens. Or maybe um, uh, a business not keeping a commitment in order to help a bottom line. Um, or maybe someone not honoring a contract that was signed for a deal. We've all felt this. Uh, and it hurts when people don't keep their word to us. And we can all think about the countless times where we have not kept our word with others. The passage that we're looking at this morning is about keeping our word and doing what, we're, what we say we're going to do. Uh, we're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount looking at the way of Jesus... And we've seen so far that he dives into some really personal areas of our lives and shows us that following his way is not just about checking boxes on doing some external rules, doing some external things, but actually he's here to deal with our whole hearts and our motives, with the, with the inside of why and how we're following him. And as he talks about keeping our word this morning, he's going to talk about divorce and taking oaths. So let me read this for us. This is Matthew 5. Beginning in verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, 
for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The word of the Lord. Father, we pause to thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. And we just acknowledge that we really need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us during this time? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So I'm not a big baseball fan. Um, I typically just catch a little bit of the World Series, go Rangers, um, and try to follow like some of the big highlights throughout the season. But I remember in 2016, the World Series, this was a year the, the Chicago Cubs finally broke what was the longest championship drought in North American professional sports history, 108 years by winning the World Series, 2016. It had been since 1908 since they had won. And finally it happened. And you can imagine how Cubs fans felt. Maybe you're, maybe you're a Cubs fan. Uh, but you can imagine how they felt. I remember seeing a story about a father and a son who grew up, die-hard Cubs fans. And they made this promise to each other that, all right, whenever uh, the Cubs make it to the series again, they were going to get together and listen to the, all the games on the radio, which was like their tradition. Their, you know, baseball, you'll do it on the radio. It's classic Americana. That's what they were going to do. And uh, it took a long time for the Cubs to win the series. Obviously, the father grew old and actually passed away before the Cubs won the series in 2016. But the son, who was living in North Carolina at the time, he actually drove across the country to his father's gravesite for the final game. And he set up a tailgate chair in the cemetery. And he turned on his radio and he listened to the final game of the series while sitting next to his father's grave. It was such a big deal to the son that he kept his word to his father that even after he had passed, he sat next to his gravesite to listen to the final game of the series. Um, regardless of your background or what your beliefs are, it is beautiful and inspiring when people keep their word, especially when it's really difficult to do so. Um, in our passage, there's something bigger going on than, than just people being encouraged to keep their word to other people. It's certainly saying that. But this passage is actually pointing us to the way in which God keeps his word to us. And so here's how I want to think about this this morning. Just two headings. We're going to talk about first, keeping our word. And then secondly, God keeping his word. So first point, keeping our word. Keeping our word is really difficult. Um, We confessed it during our confession of sin. It's really easy to say that we will do something and then not follow through on it. And this passage is acutely aware of it. And Jesus addresses this first by speaking into the issue of divorce. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, it was also said, he's following that formula where he's quoting um, a, a misinterpretation of the law that they have adopted, that they're abusing. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he starts by addressing the issue of divorce, which is a super hard thing to talk about. Um, you know, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' words about our lust and sexuality, which is also a hard thing to talk about. But that is at least a hard conversation that people want to have. 
Um, not many people want to have the hard conversation about divorce because we've all been impacted by it in some way, whether it's through our own experience with it. Maybe um, you were divorced in the past. It's a part of your story. Um, maybe you're the child of divorced parents. Maybe you've had friends go through divorce or other family members. We all have some kind of baggage or wounds from divorce. But looking at this passage, it's important to ask, right, what was happening in this particular context? So the bigger context of the Sermon on the Mount was that the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day were misinterpreting God's law in order to make it easier to obey. They wanted to minimize it, lower that bar as much as possible so they could step over it and say, yeah, I'm, I'm following God perfectly. I'm checking all the boxes. And so the immediate context of our passage was that men were abusing the right to divorce. Where all they needed to do was issue a certificate of divorce to their wife and they'd be out of the marriage. And for the men who were divorced, who were the ones issuing the divorce, they would be able to go on and sustain themselves independently. They could land on their feet. They could move on very easily. But for the women during this time, it often meant that they could not work to provide for themselves and if, if they were to remain single. And they would have no choice, but they would have to go and find someone to marry in order to sustain a living. It was just the way this culture and this society worked. So the issue that Jesus is speaking into is that men were divorcing their, their wives quickly and carelessly. And what does he say into this? So the religious leaders lowered the bar for divorce. Jesus raises the bar. He says that outside of sexual immorality, of unfaithfulness within the marriage, then you ought to stay married. Now, this is not the whole of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. He speaks to it in Matthew 19. The Apostle Paul speaks to it in 1 Corinthians 7. There are other circumstances in which divorce is permissible. But here Jesus is speaking against the careless and widespread divorces that were happening due to a misinterpretation of the law. And that for these men to divorce these women without cause was essentially to force these women into another marriage, in which case he says it's as though they're committing adultery because the original divorce was not permissible. And it should be noted that within that, the primary blame is on the man who divorces for an illegitimate reason. Zoom out for a moment. Why is this a big deal? Matthew 19, 3 through 6, Pharisees come to Jesus and ask Jesus about divorce. They're trying to test him. They're trying to catch him and, and trick him, the text says in verse 3. And they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Because again... They could just write these certificates and be divorced. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus says to them in Matthew 19, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, so Jesus, in answering a question about divorce, he goes back to the definition of marriage from Genesis chapter 2. God brings these two people together as one flesh, no longer two, but one. And, you, and you'll hear that, that last part in some wedding ceremonies, what God has joined together, let not man separate, or let no man put asunder, is the old English words that are often used in a ceremony. What's he saying? There's a God-created one-flesh union that takes place in marriages unlike anything else. And this one-fleshness that happens with our bodies in marriage is confirmed by the vows that we take on our wedding day, promising love and commitment until death do us part. 
It's the biggest commitment that we can make in marriage. I think of uh, a retired minister that I know, married for many years. He was nearing the end of his ministry career. And his wife's battle with Alzheimer's and and dementia had gotten progressively worse. So he retired and committed himself to just round-the-clock care of his bride. This man still likely had a few years of ministry left in him. And it's not likely the retirement that they dreamt of when they were young in their marriage and in their careers. But they made promises to each other on their wedding day. To stay committed to each other even in sickness or in health. And to this day, this man continues to care for his wife at great cost to himself, keeping this commitment. And it's not easy. It requires a daily dying to himself, a lot of personal sacrifice to to keep serving and to keep caring for her. Jesus is telling us, keep your promise in marriage. And he doesn't just tell us stuff like this to give us more rules to follow or to be harsh and strict. He tells us this because he's good And he loves us and he wants what's best for us. That his way is actually the way of life. It's the way of flourishing. And and when everything inside of us is screaming to break our commitment in marriage for something that in the short term seems better, Jesus is telling us there is actually a deeper joy in keeping our word. And it may mean difficulty in this life, but there's something very good and very right about keeping our commitment. Um, one of the things that I, when I officiate a wedding, that I, I heard a pastor say this in a homily years ago, and I stole it, and I, I say it to every bride and groom that I officiate a wedding for now. I, I say that when you make your vows to one another, you're promising that no matter what happens, good or bad, sickness or health, richer or poor, you're promising that I'm not going anywhere no matter what. That I'm committed to you until Death do us part. It's commitment to each other no matter what. What does this teaching on divorce mean for us today? If divorce is a part of your story, first and foremost, remember the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. And whatever the terms of your divorce were, especially if you think back and you're reflecting on them, you're listening to the sermon thinking maybe they were outside the bounds of what Scripture allows, know that God stands ready to forgive. Don't forget His grace and His mercy. And come to Him as a refuge for healing and for restoration. Um, and lean into the family of God, your church community, to walk with you through it. Don't hide that part of your story. Know that it is a part of your story that God is at work in and God is redeeming. And it's something that you can share and you can walk through with your church family. And you may have specific questions about a divorce that you were a part of and and know that I would love to follow up and talk more about that. But first and foremost, remember the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, If you're here and you're married, what does this say to us? Stay married. Stay married. The grass is not greener outside of marriage. Um, This means that not if, but when things get difficult in marriage, get help. Um, See a marriage counselor. Marriage counseling and personal counseling have been a regular occurrence for Aaron and I. Um, Seek counseling certainly when you feel like you're in crisis mode, but even when things are going pretty well. Stay close to a marriage counselor. Always find ways to tune up the marriage. 
Um, Talk about the state of your marriage with other people. Keep your marriage in community. Pray for your marriage in neighborhood groups. Share about how it's going within your neighborhood group. Do not isolate within your marriage. Don't try to handle the ups and the downs of your marriage on your own. Live out your marriage in community. What does this say to us, this passage say to us if we're single? Don't settle in order to get married. Don't settle. Marry someone who loves Jesus. Uh, Those who have made Jesus the most important part of their lives are to only marry others who have made Jesus the most important part of their lives. Make this marrying in the Lord a top priority for your future marriage and therefore make it a top priority for dating. Um, As you date, date in community. Let your other friends who love Jesus see you with this person you're dating and speak into it and commit to listening to them. Um, Those who are close to us can often see things in our relationships a lot more clearly than we can. This is the first part of the passage. Jesus says to keep our word in our marriages, but then he expands it and he tells us to keep our word in all of life. Look at verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What is an oath? What does it mean to take an oath? Taking an oath would be invoking God's name in some way in order to guarantee your word on something. Maybe some modern day examples would be um, when you see certain public offices sworn in, they'll, they'll put their hand on, on a Bible, raise the right hand. You see that when people testify in the court of law, put your hand on the Bible, raise your hand. Um, we do something similar. We sign contracts today. When we, when we make marriage vows, um, we make promises to do something, to show up, to commit to certain things. We have all kinds of oaths and vows and promises and contracts and commitments built into the fabric of our society and to our everyday lives. Why do we have all these? We have all these because we are generally terrible at staying true to our word. We are not naturally good at doing what we say we will do. Financial deals are no longer done by a verbal agreement or a handshake. You've got to get it in writing. What was going on in the context of our passage? The religious leaders and the Pharisees were trying to find loopholes in the oaths and vows that they had made so that they would not have to keep them. There was this distinct difference between swearing by Jerusalem and swearing towards Jerusalem. And all those specifics are listed in verses 34 through 36 because the religious leaders were trying to nuance the language of their original vows they made so that they wouldn't have to keep them, so they could wiggle their way out of them. You know, sometimes you run into stuff like this with warranties on products. You know, companies offer what sounds like these amazing warranties on the front end, but then if you read the fine print, there are all these stipulations that the customer has to keep. Uh, For instance, real-life example, for your tires to be fully guaranteed and replaced if any issues arise, you have to have them rotated every certain number of miles at the place where you bought them. If you don't do one of those things, they have the legal right to void the warranty on this contract and not honor the original warranty. Or think about something like false advertising. The the, the big one that's been in the news lately has been fast food restaurants exaggerating the size of their food of like the burgers and fries in the advertisements where customers are getting the meal and they're like, 
This is not what you said this would be. Um, think about it when you look at, um, at a home or an apartment to rent. Uh, you're looking at, you know, you're scanning through looking at pictures. You're like, man, this place looks amazing. It looks like way bigger than 1,500 square feet. It's so, there's all that natural light in there. It's, it looks really clean. And then you go and see it in, your pers- in person and, and it's like, you, know, you can barely stand up in there. It's really dimly lit. There's a weird smell. Like, this, is not, this is not what they promised. Um, it, it's difficult when you feel like someone's trying to get out of their word, word or falsely promising something to you. The religious leaders were trying to get out of keeping their word. And they were doing this by nuancing all the ways, the specific ways they made these oaths and vows. And into this, Jesus says, all right, rather than taking an oath on anything at all, just say yes or no. What's he really saying? His followers should have such high integrity that we don't need to take oaths. We can just say yes or no and follow through on our word. He's telling us to tell the truth and to keep our word. To be honest. To have integrity. To follow through on our commitments. Even when it's to our disadvantage. Here's how Dan Doriani puts it in his commentary. He says, it is God's will that we do what we say. Especially in solemn settings where others depend on our words... Even if circumstances change, even if we get a better offer, even if faithfulness becomes difficult, even if the temptation to break a vow seems unbearable, even if keeping a vow brings real loss, even if no one but God will know if we break our vow, we should still do what we say. We should disregard a vow only if keeping it requires us to sin. Followers of Jesus are to keep their word. Maybe one application of this for us. It probably means we need to say no on the front end a lot more than we do. And that's coming from a people pleaser who loves to say yes to all the things. But rather than saying yes to commitments, knowing we're already too overextended to keep them, we might need to say no up front. A podcaster that I listen to on leadership he interviews a lot of high-level leaders. And he was reflecting back on some of the, a few themes that he saw with all these high-level leaders. And one of the things he said was that all these leaders have learned how to say no. They, and and that, that saying no to someone, it, it can feel like it hurts in the short term, but it actually allows us to keep our commitments in the long term. It, saying no allows us to keep our yeses. Keeping our word in marriage. Keeping our word in everyday life. These are hard words from Jesus. They're good words, they're beautiful words, but they're hard words. And to really hear them, we need to hear the bigger context of the scriptures. We've talked about us keeping our word, let's talk about God keeping his word. Here's the good news. The Bible says that God always keeps his word. And it's been this way from the very beginning. God makes covenant commitments to his people. A covenant is a binding relational agreement between two parties where it is clear at the outset what the penalty will be for breaking the covenant. And the covenant commitment that God makes to us and repeats throughout the Bible is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. That probably sounds familiar to you if you have some familiarity with the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's Terms of a relationship being guaranteed. And there are specific covenants that God makes at creation. When Adam and Eve disobey God in Genesis 3 with Noah and Abraham and David. God is constantly committing himself to his people time and time again. Even after we break those commitments. And every promise of God, every commitment that he makes to us is ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus then came as the fulfillment of all those previous covenant commitments and establishes this new covenant which is a covenant of the heart where we see the ultimate commitment and fulfillment of that refrain, I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, God has so committed himself to us. He has so committed himself to being our God and to us being his people that he came and he took our punishment for breaking the covenant. God, the one who kept his side of the deal, came to take the penalty for those who broke their side of the deal. And what was the penalty? It was death. It was death. God was so committed to keeping his word to us that he died for us. And this means that he will be our God and we will be his people forever, no matter what. Two things that this means for us, for how we think about keeping our word. The first is this. Jesus' death on the cross offers forgiveness for the many different ways we've broken our promises to God and to others. Whether that's in marriage, whether that's in friendship, in business, in our family, in big ways, in small ways. We say it every week because we need to hear it. If you're in Christ, you're really forgiven. He forgives those who don't keep their word. That's the first thing. Secondly, because God went to great lengths to keep His word, we can now go to great lengths to keep our word. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that is living inside of us. That Spirit gives us the ability to let our yes be yes and our no be no, even if it means great sacrifice. When I was in seminary, we had to do an internship um, with a list of requirements that had to be met. One of the requirements had to do with preaching a certain number of times. And uh, so to finish up my preaching requirements, um, I went to this retirement home in St. Louis, Missouri called Friendship Village, which is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. I would, I would move in there now if it were a possibility. Um, over the course of this month that I, I spent at this um, retirement home, I got to know a few of the residents. And uh, one of the couples I got to know was a married couple who they were both still alive, living together in this retirement home. They were 96 years old, this couple. And they had been married for 75 years. And this was the thing, this was one of the first things they shared with me. It was one of the things that as they talked about, you could tell they were most proud of in life. And sitting with this couple, you could tell they were best friends. Um, They had a sweetness about them. They had a joy about them, a lightheartedness. They smiled at each other. They kind of giggled when they talked about their 75 years of marriage. They held hands. They laughed. And surely over 75 years, they'd had some ups and downs. But to see the commitment last was beautiful and was so worth it. Do you see the beauty of God going to great lengths to keep his word to us? We see it in Jesus on the cross and it means that one day that actually guarantees that we will be with God and his people in perfect relationship, in perfect love forever. And keeping this commitment through all the ups and downs of this life will be more than worth it. This covenant-keeping God, the God who always keeps His word, He offers Himself to you today. Won't you receive Him by faith? Let's pray together.
Father, this is a 